Good afternoon. Today is the 1st of March 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to have Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And also we are joined by Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. A packed news today. So we'll get straight on then. The Windsor Framework, uh, this is what it's called. It's a new way forward. It's best of both worlds. We'll come on to that again in a second, but everybody's talking about the best of both worlds over the, yesterday and today. Uh, let's just have a quick look at uh, Rishi's comments during the press conference uh, on Wednesday afternoon. This afternoon, I welcomed President von der Leyen to Windsor to continue our discussions about the Northern Ireland Protocol. I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. Today's agreement delivers smooth flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom, protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. The United Kingdom and European Union may have had our differences in the past, but we are allies, trading partners, and friends. Something that we've seen clearly in the past year as we joined with others to support Ukraine. This is the beginning of a new chapter in our relationship. So that's what he had to say. If everybody has stopped uh, throwing up at that point, uh, Alex, I'm very interested to, to get your thoughts on, on his opening gambit. Uh, because, well, as we're about to see, it seems like this may be something that's been in the works for a bit longer than they're implying. Um, and perhaps it does bring us back to uh, 2016 or so. The first thing I'd ask, Mike, is where was the Taoiseach? Didn't Ireland fight a bloody war 100 years ago for its sovereignty? Uh, where is Ireland's place at deciding what comes into the Republic of Ireland? Uh, not on the menu, it seems. And menu is a deliberate pun because of what you're about to cover. Um, in what you're about to cover, I think listeners should always be alert to the sleight of hand in wording. So when you hear about pro the protocols and agreements, bear in mind that if it's called a protocol, it will be international law because that ranks only under conventions and treaties. If it's called anything other than a protocol, it's not recognised in international law and it has no force in any courts. Um, so, yes, let's just have a look at this then. So uh, we'll bring some sausages on screen because that's the most important thing. Uh, the ban is lifted on sausages and chilled meats, meaning customers will have full access uh, to a full range of UK products. It didn't say anything about tomatoes, uh, but there you go. Uh, sausages at least can come over. Uh, and uh, then we've got parcels because, of course, people in Northern Ireland aren't entitled to receive parcels uh, from any uh, online service uh, in the UK in the rest of the UK at the moment. So parcels can now be sent between consumers in Great Britain and Northern Ireland without any additional requirements for the sender or the receiver. Uh, apparently they're gonna take uh, the uh, scissors to a bunch of laws, which I don't believe for a second. Uh, and then we have this thing that they're calling the storm and break. And Alex, uh, this is the, the bit that I think is particularly amusing uh, because they claim the democratically elected assembly can oppose new EU rules that would have damaging effects on their everyday lives. Now, the point here is uh, that they can make this claim without any risk whatsoever, because in order to implement the, or to pull the brake on, uh, you've got to get cross-party agreement. You've got to have 30 uh, ML, MLS, MLPs from 
the DUP, for example, plus 30 from Sinn Féin or from the Alliance Party. Does the Alliance Party even have 30? Uh, I'm not really sure. So therefore, you've got to have agreement between the DUP and Sinn Féin that, uh, that, that this break should be pulled on. Both governments, the British government and the EU, uh, can be pretty certain that that is never going to happen. Yes, I suppose I should make this point because a diminishing number of viewers will be aware of this. It's fully a quarter of a century now since the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, 1998. What uh, was instituted in that year of revolutions was sectarianism. The British government connived with the Irish government and US uh, presence. There wasn't much EU presence. That was a, a post hoc claim with no basis. They contrived to introduce sectarianism into the Northern Ireland uh, Assembly. The, the, the Crown had unilaterally prorogued or, or broken Parliament in 1974 in Northern Ireland, leading to direct rule from Whitehall. And then when it came back in 1998, members of the Legislative Assembly had to register whether they were a Catholic or a Protestant before taking their seats or at the time of being sworn in. Uh, otherwise, it won't get anywhere. Right now, there is no First Minister of Northern Ireland. That's another legal uh, fiction that's been maintained because there is a joint office of first minister and deputy first minister in tandem and one has to be a catholic the other has to be a protestant right now because paul given of the dup resigned his post last summer that automatically triggered the disbarment from office of the Sinn Féin deputy first minister there is no government in belfast at the moment to put its foot down right so um, here's the reason for it. no let's clarify this the reason uh, that this whole negotiation began uh, was because of the issue of the border down the Irish Sea uh, and uh, the fact that the DUP would not uh, take part in the Northern Irish Assembly as a result. That's the official reason. That's the reason that's justifying uh, what's going on here. Um, and as a result, they have amended the situation to claim that the border down the Irish Sea has disappeared. So if we bring the green lane on screen, uh, the customs bureaucracy will be scrapped and replaced with data sharing of ordinary existing commercial information. So it's amazing how the, this gift keeps on giving because they get to share data in ways or justify the, the data sharing in ways that uh, they weren't able to before. Uh, but also they claim that the customs bureaucracy will be scrapped. The question is, will it? Let's just have a listen to a little bit of uh, Channel 4 News' coverage of this last night. Uh, and uh, maybe there's something to, to be discussed here. Let's have a listen to this. With a deal signed, attention turns now to the infrastructure needed to implement it. On this site in Larne next to the port, building work is now expected to start soon. Leaked plans of the proposed border control post to Channel 4 News show the scale of infrastructure needed. The client listed as EU designations of NI portal facilities. One page sets out designs for stabling for checks on animals. Another, labelled product inspection facility, shows the layout for vans and trucks to enter the site. The cost of all this infrastructure is expected to be tens of millions of pounds. So Channel 4 News has presented that those plans as being something new. Plans leaked to Channel 4 News. Uh, this is apparently something that they're claiming has come about as a result of uh, this particular agreement, but this is not the case. Here's the BBC from 2020, and here are the exact plans that Channel 4 News was discussing uh, coming on screen at the moment. And in fact, uh, relatives of mine were talking about this these plans uh, in 2019. So uh, this clearly is something, Alex, which has been in the works for quite a long time. I believe they probably uh, fully intended to get to this destination, uh, but they were playing the Northern Ireland politics game 
uh, and therefore nothing happens overnight. So they pushed forward the protocol, uh, which they knew very well was going to split the parties in Northern Ireland, uh, which would justify uh, moving to this destination. Uh, now, what's fascinating about this is that if you watch the mainstream coverage over the last 24, 48 hours, it's full of the term best of both worlds. And what are they talking about? Well, this was the, ti this was the title of David Cameron's uh, original white paper. Here it is on screen from 2016, the best of both worlds, the United Kingdom's special status in a reformed European Union. Uh, and uh, Alex, I don't know what you think of this deal, but it seems to me that um, this is really what they're aiming for, is this destination and this new deal that they've done with respect to Northern Ireland is a step along the way. Of course it is, Mike. Um, so Paddy Mayhew said back in that era in the late 90s, mid-90s even, that Her Majesty's government, as it then was, had no selfish or strategic interest in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's quite obvious, and this goes back to Merlin Rees as a Labour Secretary of State in the early 70s, that Whitehall was looking to jettison the uh, financial burden and the regulatory burden of Northern Ireland uh, under the pretext of the Troubles. Nothing has changed. This, in my analysis, is just one of the, the strands along which the Cabinet Office and uh, the deep state in Britain have decided that Brexit, with its annoying little trifling matter of Ulster that they don't care about, uh, is just a way, a, an opportunity to reform and rewrite the constitution in practice. And all of what you've covered, I have to stress again, is called a framework, winter framework. It's not an international law document, and it was known back, even not in 2019 that you just cited, but 2018, 2017, under Theresa May's premiership, she put to the people of Northern Ireland right then, when Brexit was a, a done deal in the vote, do you want to border down the Irish Sea? It was the EU, clearly, and her own deep state leaning on her to say that. Uh, because uh, it's EU officers running the show. You know, if you take a, uh, a dog or a sausage or some other banned products between these two parts of the United Kingdom, you might have a friendly British uh, official talking to you, but it's an EU official who'll be monitoring them back in that hut in Lahn. Indeed. Uh, well, can, can, I just, can I just suggest that I, I see the hut there as a foreign power on British soil, but their influence is going to spread far outside that hut. That's a Trojan horse is how I see that uh, facility. Uh, absolutely. So uh, just to reinforce this point, if we bring the Express on from 2017, uh, Boris Johnson saying that the UK will have the best of both worlds. Uh, this was after the white paper was, was published. This is the, de the destination. And this is why we have said from the beginning that what was on the table here was Brexit without the exit. Because uh, while we've got, had the headlines about Brexit over the last couple of years, Brexit is by no means finished uh, and uh, we will see uh, lots of, uh, uh, how do we put it, lots of backtracking going on over the next couple of years. Um, but uh, let's just move on then uh, to this because of course as part of this whole thing it all happened at Windsor and the next thing was that uh, Ursula was busy uh, curtsying to the king. Uh, this has received quite a bit of criticism uh, in ver from various circles because of course he's supposed, uh, but Alex, you can comment on this if you like, he's supposed to uh, not get involved in these political matters. Uh, the clue's in his job description, he's the sovereign. If sovereign states are negotiating, then in, on his behalf, a treaty will be signed. This was not a treaty. This is a political deal and it's in the EU's hands. So on both counts, he is not supposed to be involved at all. You're about to cover the coronation oath. People often say, how can this co uh, coincide with the coronation oath? The machinery regards him as success as uh, heir 
from the moment of his mother's demise. Uh, the coronation oath is essential, uh, but in the interim, he's already been bro- breaking the terms of what he's about to swear to. Uh, indeed. So let's just uh, bring the coronation oath uh, on the screen because, uh, well, first of all, we'll get to this because the BBC is very excited this morning uh, that the f- extremely fragile coronation chair is being restored in pre- preparation for the coronation, which is taking place, of course, in a couple of months time. Uh, now, I would make a couple of points about this. First of all, uh, Alex, uh, very interested in your thoughts or some comment on his mother's coronation oath. Uh, because we made this point before, but it's just worth remembering that Qu- that Elizabeth II did not sign the coronation oath under the words. She signed above the words with a nice bit of ribbon between her signature and the words themselves. And what that implies to me, Alex, you're, you've got more of a legal mind than I do, so you can comment on this. What that implies to me is that as far as she was concerned, the words were subordinate to her. Uh, Whereas what normally happens on the legal document is we sign underneath to demonstrate that we stand under the words that we are signing. Yes, and of course, Her Majesty had, had, had been trained since her teens by a member of the Fabian Society uh, in uh, what's supposed to be her duties. Um, people can call it conspiratorially minded to say that the, where the signature uh, goes makes a difference, but we do not have footage, although the cameras were there in the Abbey covering every, everything except the sacred moment of anointing with holy oil, everything was filmed and the, the resolution on the cameras was good enough in those days to have caught it, but we just see a bit of vague me, uh, moving. Uh, people have said, why did it take a year to set up the coronation? It wasn't all the pageantry and the Earl Marshal. Uh, a lot of it was Prince Philip uh, trying to work out behind the scenes uh, what it was that the, she was going to swear to. Most, uh, this was admitted by Churchill, by the way, what I'm about to say in Parliament, most sovereigns have not sworn the coronation oath in terms of the constitutionally vital Ter- uh, uh, wording, uh, which was brought in with the Coronation Oath Act as part of the 1688-89 revolution. Uh, Churchill said it around the, uh, at the time of the preparations for coronation, so early 52, or early 53 rather, that uh, if they were to uh, insist on this wording, then they would have uh, debarred uh, post, uh, uh, post hoc most of the uh, sovereigns that had reigned since George I. So many, many questions to answer, but it's never too late to insist on coronation oaths being sworn to by the, the terms duly agreed to. That's a, that's a condition of the crown being granted to the sovereign. Uh, yes. Can we just add to that? And we know that at the moment people are picking up on this discrepancy between uh, what the king should be doing and what he appears to be doing politically and are starting to ask questions in some pretty senior places. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what responses come back as this thing comes into the public domain. Yes, so where we'll, where, where on the page will Charles sign the coronation oath? But let's have a look and see what uh, one person uh, has written to Rodney Atkinson uh, yesterday on this issue, well, on the issue of the oath at least. Uh, Rodney, this one should be right up your street from the Union with Scotland Act 1706. Uh, trade and navigation and other rights that all subjects of the United Kingdom of Great Britain shall from and after the Union have full freedom in it a course of trade and navigation to and from any port or place within the said United Kingdom and the dominions and plantations thereunto belonging uh, and that there be a communication of all other rights, privileges and advantages which do or may belong to the subjects of either kingdom except where it's otherwise expressly agreed in these articles. So that's from the Union with Scotland Act 1706, still on the statute books. Uh, So there you have it, the 15 cities nonsense is actually unlawful, is the point that Joe's making. Uh, Rodney Atkinson wrote back and said, applies to both 15-minute cities and the Northern Ireland trade position 
uh, we pointed out in our 1993 treason charges, the Maastricht contradiction with the Union of Scotland Act. Uh, the older our extant laws, the more they seem to defend us. Uh, there's much to praise in this Roger Horsham suggestion for the coronation oath. And the suggestion is that Prince Charles should swear to uphold our constitutional common law, which takes precedence over parliamentary statutes and to withhold royal assent from any legislation which threatens to contravene such law. Uh, do you agree with that, Alex? Wholeheartedly. Uh, this is basic stuff, although it's not taught in detail in law schools anymore. Treaties outrank statute law. Right? The US is very clear about that in its constitutional terms, which is why you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate. Hence why they try to go around the wording of treaty in, in, uh, in, in agreements they make these days on both sides of the Atlantic. But yet the, the, the treaty between England and Scotland, which were still then separate parliamentary uh, states, uh, agreed this communication of uh, subjects as well, very important because jurisprudence later in Calvin's case affirmed that that meant Magna Carta was a Scotsman's right and the, the declaration of Arbroath was an Englishman's right. right so uh, the, the other part of it, of course, is that the treaty set up what we would nowadays call a single market. That was merely transposed into law on the eve of the union by the, both the old Scottish and the old English parliaments. And then, of course, a creature of the modern government sets up uh, this thing called a single market for the UK just in time for it to do business with the single market of the EU mm. because they know that those are those are putty in their hands uh, but of course they're outranked by what was created by treaty. Indeed. Okay thank, thank you for that Alex. Well let's just bring Debbie in here because Debbie you've also been picking up on the Windsor framework. Yes, I have. Good afternoon. And apologies if um, I look as though I'm in doom and gloom. Um, it's the camera on, on the computer. So um, my apologies. It's, it's bright daylight. So sorry for that. But yes, also the Windsor framework uh, affects medicines. Um, and the people of Northern Ireland will, I'm sure, be very glad to know that the agreement says that from now on, drugs approved for use by the UK's medicines regulator will be automatically available in every pharmacy and hospital in Northern Ireland. Um, now, what I do believe and what I've heard is that this doesn't apply to agricultural medicines, so only applies to human medicines, but apparently we're still awaiting some clarification on agricultural medicines. Yeah, yeah. I, I find this interesting. It's the Windsor framework. I, I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Do well, they it's actually only because say? it happened at Windsor. Because it happened at Windsor. Yes. Okay, so no kingly involvement. Ah, well, other than <laughs> what we've already mentioned, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, let's um, switch on to the subject of Ukraine, which has really disappeared from the media in UK. But uh, let's do an update on what's happening on the battlefield, uh, because um, massive, massive fighting going on, particularly around uh, Bakhmut. So here is a map of the city, uh, Bakhmut Centre, and obviously the red are the uh, uh, the areas now taken by the Russians. And you can see that uh, bar, in fact, bar one small road, which is itself under Russian artillery fire control, um, the ring is nearly closed. Um, but uh, one of the key things that's happened over the last few days is that Ukrainian forces have moved from the east of the Bakhmutka River uh, they've moved to the west, so they've withdrawn across the river. And this has meant that the uh, Russian forces have started to move much quicker on the eastern side of the city. But you can see now how they are moving into the grain of Bakhmut city itself. And it's very 
obvious that the, for the Ukrainian forces are in deep trouble here. Now, it's estimated at the moment that there's about 7,000 Ukrainian troops still in Bakhmut and they're under huge pressure, as we can see. But the key thing is at the moment, um, Zelensky has denied the Ukrainian forces the sensible option of withdrawal west. And there are many reports that the Ukrainian generals are quite rightly saying we need to get these troops out. But Zelensky doesn't want to do that. And the main reason being put forward for his uh, delay is that he cannot allow Bakhmut to, to fall until he's got the Western equipment, which he thinks is coming. But I'm going to suggest today that it's now very clear that both uh, the Ukrainian people and Zelensky utterly betrayed by the West. Um, here's another image, a very good analysis uh, on this site, Weeb Union. But this uh, particular picture, I, I believe, is worth putting up because the pink-edged areas indicate Russian tactical advances over a number of days. And this gives you an insight into how the Russians are are moving forward. I, I've said it's almost like a lava flow, but they're minimizing the Russian casualties. They're standing back, they're shelling the Ukrainians. And then when they have the opportunity, they make these small tactical advances. It appears to be not very much on a day by day basis usually, but when we start to see it over a few days, it's very clear that the Russians are achieving the military mission. Now, I'm going to say this again. I believe I've said this before, that reports from other informed sources indicate that while some Ukrainian troops are withdrawn from Bakhmud, uh, they are elite troops. And what appears to be happening is Zelensky is trying to protect his elite troops for fighting in areas where Ukraine is also having big trouble holding the Russians. Um, but raw recruits are being sent into Bakhmut and they're dying in vast numbers. Now, I have shown some video over the previous days. I'm going to show this clip. This is not Bakhmut. This is Marinka, um, an area to the west of Donetsk City. Um, but because the resolution is very clear on this particular footage, I wanted to put it on screen so that nobody is in any doubt of how the fighting is conducted. Here is an urban area devastated principally by artillery. This is how the Russians are clearing out the Ukrainian forces. And then when their own troops are going to move in or before their own troops are going to move in, the Russians are sending in uh, tanks and other armored vehicle in order to destroy the last pockets of Ukrainian resistance. But look at the scale of destruction. This is very similar, Mike, to Syria, of course. Uh, but the BBC simply not reporting what is happening here. It's as if the fighting of Marinka and Bakhmut doesn't exist. Uh, this was the BBC uh, front page of their website this morning. Um, absolutely nothing there. Uh, but of course, they're very excited about the death in Greece, the train accident, because this can hide the bigger death in Ukraine. So the BBC deliberately deceiving the British public to hide the slaughter that's happening in Ukraine. And if I sound passionate about this today, I feel passionate. Um, vital battles in Ukraine simply censored into oblivion by the BBC. And we, or many people in UK, paying for this propaganda from the BBC. Quite disgraceful. 
Here is the dedicated Ukraine page. The war in Ukraine is the tab. And of course, when you click on it, there is nothing of any detail about the fighting in Bakhmut. And this is remarkable because if we step back into April 2022, here was the BBC's headline, Donbass, the battle in East Ukraine expected to be bloody and decisive. So the BBC knew full well that the moment the uh, Russians got into the grain of the eastern Donbass, this was a decisive part of the war. And of course, if the Russians win this largely built up industrial section of Ukraine, they're going to move forward with greater speed over the rest of Ukraine. Uh, but here is the Ministry of Defence in UK, also effectively deceiving the UK public by admission. So nothing of any substance about the battle going on in Bakhmut or the accelerating collapse of Ukrainian defences. Uh, here is their uh, tweet of the intelligence update. This is all about drones. Uh, collapse of Bakhmut, there's nothing being said. And of course, they dare not say anything because if they do, the British public would be aware that Ukraine is now starting to collapse. It is losing the military battle and all sorts of horrible things are about to unfold in Ukraine. But uh, surprisingly, if we visit the Kiev Post, there was a very interesting report. Uh, this was from, uh, this is actually February the 28th. Ukraine troops on edge as Moscow seeks to encircle Bakhmud. So even the Ukrainians having to talk about it, if you read the detail of the article, what it says is while some troops seem to be quite uh, upbeat about what's happening, uh, soldiers are talking about the fact everybody is on edge. They can only shelter in basements because the artillery fire is so intense. One says lack of sleep, cold rain, the weather is changing all the time, constant shelling, constant infantry assaults. And he is saying that uh, we don't feel we get support from our artillery. And he ends by saying, I think Bakhmud will most likely fall. So this is the reality, but nothing by the BBC, nothing by the British Ministry of Defence, nothing of any substance in Western or UK media, deliberate deception of the public. And then we come to this because all of a sudden, against this background, the F-16s and fighter aircraft to Ukraine is beginning to disappear. Mm. So here we are. This is ABC News getting F-16s to Ukraine with training could take up to 18 months. Well, in 18 months, Ukraine is not going to be out of fight. So this is effectively the Pentagon pulling away uh, from the Ukrainians after they've been egged on to fight the Russians for a year absorbing massive casualties. So disappearing F-16s, but it's the same thing with the tanks. So the Express from a couple of days ago, British tanks have broken down old vehicles, but Ukraine will receive UK's best units. Uh, but the reality is that the tanks are simply not getting there. Here's the New York Times. This actually is a very good article, scrounging for tanks for Ukraine. Europe's armies come up short. So uh, the tanks are disappearing as well. And uh, basically what we can actually see is that uh, Western support from Ukraine is falling apart at a convenient time when Ukraine is losing the battle. 
Alex, I don't know whether you want to respond to that, but I think it is truly shocking to see what the BBC in particular is doing to deceive the public. I don't think you're being uh, over the top there, Brian. Uh, the BBC has a duty by its charter to report impartially. When it comes to a war, you would think that it was duty bound to pay its attention to the greatest battle of the month, surely. But uh, let's go on to just a, a one uh, slide item that I have regarding Ukraine at the moment. CNN on the eve of the first anniversary of the war, war held what the Americans call a town hall, that is uh, a talking heads meeting uh, on what they are editorially obliged to call Russia's war in Ukraine. And uh, one of the speakers we're about to hear in a clip was uh, Samantha Power, actually Irish born. I think she was there till she was nine, but very much in the US uh, defense establishment now. People will remember her perhaps berating her counterpart uh, of the Russian Federation in the UN Security Council some years ago over Syria. Uh, but here she is giving a very uh, telling one minute summary of how America is supposed, right thinking Americans who watch CNN, how they are supposed to view the course of the war. Listen out towards the end of this minute for the giveaway line, which I think Brian is probably going to pick up on. What is at stake in Ukraine are values and interests so core to the United States. I mean, imagine just wanting your freedom and your independence. I mean, this, this country is predicated on exactly those two values. Imagine the counterfactual where we walk away or we didn't show up in the first place. And what that would mean when a dictator who has shut down civil society, shut down independent media, shut down dissenting voices in his own country, then can just turn his sights on a neighbor and with impunity take over that country. I mean, what would that mean for our allies in Europe? What would that mean for our own security over time? So I think, you know, Americans understand bullies and the importance of standing up to bullies. At the same time, again, we're very alert to the risks, uh, given that Russia is a nuclear armed power, as you rightly uh, uh, say. Uh, but that, that is, again, how we are in the position that we are in now, building a coalition of countries, coming together, making sure that this isn't just the United States and Russia, uh, that this, in fact, is Ukrainians on the front lines, Ukrainians doing the fighting, and a coalition of 50 countries rallying behind them, and including, actually, today, more than 140 countries at the UN signaling still a year into the war their support for Ukraine's self-defense. I'm sure you heard it, Brian. Ukrainians well, on the front line, Ukrainians yeah. doing the fighting, and 140 countries virtue signaling in a chamber at the UN behind them. Well, that, that it, this is utterly obscene. And of course, if I'm going to keep hammering the BBC on this, but if the BBC alone was to be reporting the true casualties on the Ukrainian side. The figure that I've given as a best figure from some, some really excellent analysis going on at the battlefield is that the Ukrainian death toll is now up to the 350,000, 375,000 troops killed. If the BBC reported that reality, we can see how disgusting the rest of this uh, US, UK, NATO policy is simply using Ukrainian lives as puppets for this globalist agenda. It, it, couldn't, it couldn't get more blatant, Alex, or could it? I don't know. I think the second year of this war, God forbid, is going to include quite a lot more blatancy. I mean, these things are not being done in a corner. 
uh, much of what you said in your last segment made me think of the obscure war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh in September 2020, because I helped to translate a book of uh, uh, reminiscences of atrocities committed in that war, which I've covered on UK Column News before. And uh, unanimously, these soldiers who didn't know each other from different parts of the front said, we were abandoned by our commanders and let down by our foreign allies. And anyone who was a practiced soldier scarpered at the first sight of the enemy and left the raw recruits uh, and the, um, the the idealistic volunteers uh, to be scooped up and haplessly taken away to POW torture centres. So, no, I'm afraid these things can get worse and worse. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Alex. Now, uh, Jens Stolberg yesterday was in uh, Helsinki uh, to try and push for more NATO expansion. Now, of course, we've been talking about the Sweden-Finland thing for quite a long time now, uh, but he's basically saying it's time. It's time to expand uh, into... Uh, Finland and Sweden, uh, we've run out of time and we've got to get ahead with it. Now, I just want to uh, uh, mention uh, this uh, little video clip from, well, it, the interviewer is speaking to uh, Scott Bennett, who's a psychological warfare uh, expert from the United States. Uh, this, I believe, is from Czech uh, me Alternative Media, uh, but just have a listen to the analysis here. Scott Bennett, a former U.S. Army psychological warfare officer, is now with us from San Francisco. Scott, thanks for being with us. Let's just first, uh, discuss uh, Finland and Sweden's bid to join NATO. And correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but NATO was created in the first place to prevent another world war. And now it seems that U.S.-led NATO is creating another world war. Well, NATO should have been disbanded and dissolved in 1990 when the Soviet Union dissolved and essentially there, there became no threat to Western society. And instead, NATO transformed into this uh, parasitic uh, assault weapon that has terrorized the world. Uh, engaged in color revolutions. But it's tragic because you're witnessing the world lose all of its sanity, especially with Sweden and Finland having the, 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 the foolishness to trade their neutrality at the behest of the United States pressure, trade their neutrality and safety, and put themselves in a far worse position where now, before they had no uh, animosity or enmity against Russia, and now they potentially risk complete annihilation because Russia is not playing around. It recognizes the NATO threat and it's responding to that NATO threat. I couldn't find much to disagree with there, Alex. No, and I've not heard either of the uh, uh, interviewee there or of Bez Presu in the Czech Republic, but I'll certainly be following it up because they seem to be of high quality. Uh, it's not just people of this caliber uh, who are calling for NATO to have, well, who are arguing it should have disbanded in 1991. Uh, Brian may wish to comment because he was a NATO officer at the time. Um, but it, I noticed that David Clues at Unity News Network has uh, recently done a piece saying in terms NATO should have dis been dissolved at that time. David Scott and I gave a talk at the Pierce Institute in Glasgow uh, last summer in which uh, I, well, I, my, my talk was entitled Secession from NATO. That will be up on the site before too much longer. Uh, so, you know, in our own humble way, I think the free media are pointing this out. But again, where's the BBC analysing this argument? Yeah, I, I would just add to that, Alex. Um, soon after the, the fall of the war, we had, um, I, I 
talking in a, in a Navy sense, we had uh, East German units came for training in the UK and uh, speaking to some of, their, some of those officers, it quickly became apparent the scale of the disaster um, in the Warsaw Pact. And uh, that was the opportunity for the West, obviously, to calm everything down. But on one hand, we had uh, come back to the BBC saying the wall has fallen, it's all over. Uh, but uh, what, what never happened was NATO reassessing its position and also working to calm the situation down. So it is fascinating to look back in hindsight at that period. Um, so just coming back to Jens Stoltenberg then, uh, he made these comments also uh, in Helsinki. Uh, NATO allies have agreed that Ukraine will become a member of our alliance, but at the same time, uh, that is a long-term perspective. Uh, the issue now is you, Ukraine prevails as a sovereign, independent nation. Therefore, we need to support Ukraine. I mean, it's pathetic. Uh, the, the rhetoric goes on. But nonetheless, the idea is to keep expanding. Um, OK, now let's uh, let's just move on to uh, propaganda and particularly defense propaganda. So uh, this is DSTL. Uh, and uh, this just takes things to a new level, in my opinion. It's, it's really amazing. So they're saying that uh, the world-class teams at DSTL work with the top minds from across military, uh, academia and industry, and now science fiction. Uh, P.W. Singer and August Cole have applied their writing skills to emerging technologies and threats that may arise during the next 20 years on behalf of the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. In addition to being an author, Mr. Cole is a consultant on issues surrounding national security and the future of warfare, and was formerly a defence journalist for the Wall Street Journal in Washington. Mr. Singer is a political scientist and a scholar on international affairs and 21st century warfare. He's also a best-selling author of both fiction and non-fiction uh, books. So they go on to say, uh, what, uh, for, for generations, sci-fi writers have prophesied about futuristic technologies that have later become world-changing realities. Such authors have predicted or inspired inventions from cell phones and credit cards to submarines and driverless vehicles. DSTL also believes the lessons about potential future threats are more impactful when woven into stories as opposed to more traditional ways of warning, <laughs> right? So that's what this is about. It is sheer propaganda. Well, I'm laughing about this because one of the things that I believe personally is if you look back and uh, you saw the film Top Gun come out, um, come out, and of course it was a very big success. Uh, uh, the film with Tom Cruise uh, uh, being a uh, um, U.S. Navy pilot and fighting all sorts of people, but it wasn't long after that that you could hear young American fighter pilots talking, and you didn't know whether they were in the real world or actually they were trying to emulate Tom Cruise. So right. this stuff can be very dangerous. Right, so here's a comment from uh, Dame Angela McLean, uh, who is the chief scientific advisor. Uh, and she said, thinking the unimaginable is simply a day in the office for talented sci-fi writers who wouldn't want to hear what people like that have to say? Well, it depends on the context. So anyway, they've published this, uh, Stories from Tomorrow. and uh, It's a series of a, a whole series of short stories, uh, propaganda pieces, if anybody's interested in going, have a look, going and have a look at it. But this is taxpayer money 
uh, being used to, to prop up narratives uh, for defence. And ultimately to play with people's minds, because of yes. course when this is unleashed on the public, that is what they are doing, attacking people's minds. Well, let's, let's finish the Ukraine uh, segment uh, very quickly here, because we've got other things to move on to. Um, but I'm going to say social media is, is getting very interesting, because to my mind, it's getting more professional and uh, people are putting real care into what they're reporting. So this report um, uh, has come from the U U European Council on Foreign Relations, but I found it on social media. Somebody had flagged it up. And uh, so I want to bring it forward because they were absolutely spot on. Here's the headline, United West divided from the rest, global public opinion one year into Russia's war on Ukraine. And uh, what's all this about? Well, it's a report, but in the report, it, it uh, uh, contains this survey and it's fascinating. So I'll just give you the top left um, a block of text. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine needs to stop as soon as possible, even if it means Ukraine giving control of areas to Russia. So which of the following best reflects your view? Uh, but that's the first one. And then if you look at the table, the people who want the conflict to stop, apparently, India, Turkey, Russia, China. And then if we get down to Great Britain and the United States, we don't want it to stop. Um, on the right, Ukraine needs to regain all its territory, even if it means a longer war or more Ukrainians being killed and displaced. Uh, well, you can see the preponderance for uh, we need to get more Ukrainians killed is down there for the EU and uh, Great Britain and the United States. Uh, there was another one here, which is puts things even more clearly. So um, uh, red is, do you see Russia as an adversary? Uh, United States, EU, Great Britain, uh, quite clearly, according to this report, yes, everybody now firmly believes Russia is an adversary. Whereas if we look at India, China and Turkey, uh, they see things the other way around. So the work of the EU, NATO, the US and UK has now polarised people's minds, if these, if these uh, surveys are correct, uh, in this very black and white way. And I believe that this was the intention mm. at the very start of the Ukraine war. This is a summary of the document. A new poll suggests that Russia's war on Ukraine has consolidated the West. Uh, European and American citizens hold many views in common about major global questions. So the good guys, according to this, have all come together. Europeans and Americans agree they should help Ukraine win. They're not going to give them any weapons now because they're losing. Russia is the avowed adversary. The coming global order will most likely be defined by two blocks. So if you read between the lines here, this is nothing to do with a poll. This is about seeing where public opinion is in relation to where the globalist policy is going to come, which is creating two power blocks. Uh, in contrast, citizens in China, India and Turkey refer, prefer a quick end to the war, even if Ukraine has to concede territory. People in these non-Western countries in Russia also consider the emergence of a multipolar multi world order to be more probable than a bipolar arrangement. And Western decision makers should take into, uh, into account that the consolidation of the West is taking place in an increasingly divided post-Western world. And emerging powers such as India and Turkey will act on their own terms. Very quickly, Alex, I could see your 
uh, facial expression showing interest there. Do you want to just comment on that very briefly? Because I'm keen to get uh, Debbie on screen. As am I, she'll have a lot to tell us. Um, the ECFR is the body, uh, of course, it, its name relates to CFR in the USA. It's the body whose uh, British man, Nick Whitney, said, as we had an exclusive some years ago, that Britain needed to give its nuclear uh, uh, weapons to the EU. It should come as no surprise then that they're so on trend that they have changed Turkey to Turkia, but they haven't bothered to put the umlaut on the U of Turkia, and they call the UK Great Britain. Uh, think of our Northern Ireland se segments, mm -hmm. because this was written by continental Europeans who look down upon us, quite frankly. Uh, the mood music of that piece is very consonant with everything that's coming to me from Brussels people, actually, uh, that the, uh, they are deciding that they have at least got a united propaganda block uh, and that they are cutting their losses and saying the non-West, even Turkey, which explicitly in that ECFR report is called a non-Western country, although it's in partly in Europe, uh, they're, they're not with us anymore. Uh, we've probably lost them to Russo-Chinese propaganda, but hey-ho, we have a solid grip on the West. Yeah, okay. Thank, thank you for that, Alex. Now, in the document, uh, there were a couple of paragraphs that I pulled out, and I've pinned these against Carl Bildt, who's the co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Um, so, okay, they're, they're paragraphs in the report, but at the end of the day, a report has been approved by the uh, European Council because it's pushed out on their website. This was the quote, the new consensus among European governments is that only a Ukrainian victory will stop Putin's war. Although significant numbers of European citizens wish the war to cease as soon as possible, the, peer, the poll appears to show a clear trend over the last year towards preferring Ukraine to win, even if the conflict endures for some time longer. So I just want to emphasize here, we have real people driving this policy. It's not simply appearing in a document out of nowhere. And then he goes on, not, not unsurprisingly, in contrast, people in non-Western countries possess a clear preference for the war to end now even if it means Ukraine having to give up territory. And I'll just say that the reality on the battlefield is this war is going to end and it's not going to end in Ukraine's favour. Uh, indeed. Um, OK, if, uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us there. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do uh, share material you find on the various platforms. Excellent. Well, let's uh, bring Debbie Evans uh, in on screen. Debbie, um, you have got a very interesting section here because uh, uh, there's, there's stuff here I certainly wasn't aware of. I'm just going to introduce it by saying it's time to clear the air. Yes, it certainly is. It reminds me of a, a Holly's song, uh, All I Need Is The Air That I Breathe. And um, Clearly it is. Um, but first of all, can I just say um, my blog, thanks to uh, the team at the column, is out for this week. So please do go and have a look because any stories that I can't cover on the news, I always try to cover in my blog. So thank you for the plug for that. So back to air, the WHO, of course, if they haven't got enough to do with the pandemic treaty, they are issuing new global air quality guidelines. Let's just... Um, uh, say guidelines there, that's important to notice. And you'll see that they are saying that air pollution is one of the biggest environmental threats to human health 
alongside climate change. So a very, very big agenda. But let's just take ourselves back to actually the UK government in 2015, because we can see that from 2015, that air quality has improved significantly across a range of pollutants. So we've actually been doing very well with air quality. However, today it would seem that it's going to cost us a lot of money to breathe in, in inverted commas, clean air. So today, or I think it was yesterday, Sheffield have joined, but now air pollution has has made people 16% more likely to die from heart disease. So the excess mortality that we're seeing, perhaps they're trying to intimate that heart disease will be caused from air pollution. Mm. And we're seeing that in London, air pollution's as bad as apparently smoking 154 cigarettes a year. So that's really reassuring to know. Uh, Debbie, can I just can I just interrupt there for a second? Because if I think back over the last few decades, London's air pollution, as you've already said from those previous articles, London's air quality has improved markedly. So if if the air quality has improved markedly, why are people not dying? Uh, why are people not dying or there's the, the, how does the claim stand up because people are not dying to the degree that people died 40 or 50 years ago from air pollution related um, issues well this is where it gets a little bit even stickier because we're not actually going to be talking as you'll see as we go along we're not going to be talking about outdoor air pollution although that's what the government is talking about um but somebody uh very high up uh is going to be talking about indoor air pollution, which is a completely different subject. But in the meantime, they still want us to concentrate on out outdoor air pollution to the point where there's new clean air zones all over the place. So now Sheffield is the latest city to introduce a clean air zone. I mean, this is expensive business. Uh, this is £10 a day and you can get fined and all sorts of things. But you know, some some are saying that these clean air zones could cost up to four hundred and fifty pounds a day in fines because HGV uh, uh, drivers, lorry drivers, are going from one zone to another. So they could actually be paying a huge amount of money. But if we just look back, I just want to take everybody back to the NHS long-term plan because loads of people say to me, what's coming up in the NHS? What is going to happen? And I have been saying, please, everybody, look at the NHS long-term plan. And for those of you that don't want to look at the actual plan, although there you can see a copy of it with a little bit that I've just pasted on the top to say over the next two years, we will extend the lung health checks that have all already produced strong results in Liverpool and Manchester. So we're looking at breath tests. We're looking at how pulmonary disease is going to be affected by air pollution. But if you don't want to go and have a look at the whole of the NHS long-term plan, please can I just draw your attention back to my article, which is on the front page under Editor's Choice on the website, entitled NHS Long-Term Plan and Mental Health implementation plan phoenix or dinosaur and you can see there that i have said quite clearly that mobile breath scanners are going to suddenly start appearing in your supermarkets for the detection of covid19 and also lung cancer we're going to be encouraged to see pharmacists um, where our ventolin and our asthma medications are going to be changing and this is actually happening as we speak 
today, we are seeing supermarkets being filled with mobile scanners. And, and you'll see from the Manchester um, pilot, I think we've got a slide on Manchester. There we go. Manchester Lung Health Check pilot. It says that these are one-stop shops. So it's going to make it really easy. So anybody that's got a problem or deems themselves to be at high risk of cancer, you can have a scan, you can have spirometry. And they're really proud of what they found because they're saying, we found 46 cancers in 42 patients. So this is a one-stop shop and you're going to see it more and more. And, and, and it's interesting because Mike was talking at the beginning about things that have been happening in the past. The NHS long-term plan was 2018. And as you'll see here, AstraZeneca have been busy planning their way and they're taking giant inflatable lungs on the road. Now, this was back in 2020. So you can see that this whole lung pulmonary disease, air pollution, is, is the big agenda, I believe, for 2023. Now, the person responsible for this in the UK is somebody that we've talked about many times before, happens to be the husband of Susan Mickey, who's head of behavioural science. This is Professor Robert West. We've also highlighted a number of times the influence that Big Pharma has on cancer research. And in fact, the amount of money that goes into cancer research is absolutely phenomenal. Now, Professor Robert West, who, as I say, is the husband of Professor Susan Mickey, was involved in designing the behaviour change wheel, which we've now become also familiar with. And he's also designed the smoke-free formula. And you can see at the bottom there, he's got a blog. Um, anybody can go and have a look at it. And you can see that he's funded by Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson and GSK. So that's really reassuring to know. Now, sadly, going back to, to lung cancer and to the stories of today, Esther Ranson has been diagnosed with lung cancer. Now, their son have made quite a big deal out of it. Um, very sorry for Esther and her family. And they're saying that around 48,500 new cases in the UK, 130 day, uh, 130 a day, making it the biggest cancer killer, according to to cancer research. So clearly, we're looking now at tobacco smoke and we're looking at smoking. So I just want to remind people that uh, I'm terribly sorry uh, for uh, Dame Esther Anson, but we do seem to have quite a few trusted messengers for different diseases. I'll name a couple of them. Uh, Roy Castle, you might remember for secondary smoking. Dame Barbara Windsor uh, for dementia. Uh, Dame Deborah James for bowel cancer and Baroness Tessa Jowell for brain cancer. But if we look at the smoking statistics, and these are the latest statistics from the ONS, we can see that there is a really good decrease. There's a decrease from 14% in 2020, um, from sorry, 13 to 13.3% from 14%. Now, I appreciate that vaping is a whole new issue and it's one that we'll maybe come into on, a, on another news, but clearly you can see that vaping, uh, that smoking has been reduced. Now, C Professor Chris Whitty, when we thought he'd all gone quiet, he hasn't. He's been very busy writing his annual report. Last year's was about air pollution. And I just want people to realise that this is an agenda that Professor Chris Whitty is following. It's all in the NHS long-term plan that was written way back 
in 2018. And if you look at Chris Whitty's report, and I really would advise people go and have a look at it because it's a very interesting report. He mentions the NHS and he also mentions transport. He mentions fuel. He mentions log burners. I've just put a couple of screenshots up there so that you can see, but please do go to his report. But just just so that you don't have to go straight to his report, you might like to know that he was appearing at the select committee last week. Not a lot of people have picked this up, but he was actually appearing at a parliamentary select committee. So he's a very busy man. And we've just we've just snatched a couple of little little snippets for you to have a look at. But I really would urge everybody to look at the whole the whole parliamentary select committee because they really are very revealing. So here's a couple of clips so you can see what Professor Christopher Whitty is saying. Prevention has an absolutely uh, massive role in some diseases, uh, has a significant role in some and has almost no role in others. Let's start off with an example of a disease which is almost entirely preventable, not completely, it's about 79% preventable. Uh, I'll take two, two cancers. Um, and there are different sorts of prevention. The first cancer I'll take is cervical cancer, in young, largely in young women. Uh, this is something which we now can uh, prevent almost all deaths if we look 10, 10 to 30 years to the future, mainly by vaccination, because this is something which is driven by infection, and also by screening, because screening uh, allows us to pick it up at such an early stage it can be treated incredibly quickly as a day case really minimal uh, trauma for the women involved relative to if it goes on later. Mm. Uh, and Cancer Research UK would say this is essentially now 99% preventable once we look out to the future, uh, once the cohort of uh, girls who are vaccinated turn into women uh, and uh, into the period of, at risk. And then another cancer which is uh, highly preventable uh, is lung cancer. Lung cancer is our number one killer of a cancer. It's a horrible way to die. Most people who are diagnosed die within a year, uh, very unpleasantly. 79% uh, of all lung cancers are preventable. The great majority of that is caused by smoking. Uh, and then there are also some additional issues in terms of industrial processes and some issues in terms of uh, air pollution uh, as well. But the big one really is smoking. If smoking disappeared, the great majority of this, the worst of our cancers would just disappear. Um, I've met Esther Ranson on a number of occasions and I don't believe that she was ever a smoker. So clearly this is the way that Professor Whitty is rolling. And here comes a, another clip as well, which might just answer your question, Mike, about out, the differences between outdoor and indoor air pollution. There are choices to be made on primary prevention. And if Parliament chooses to uh, enact some of the things it could do, we could improve things like air pollution, reduce things like smoking, uh, and reduce the risks of obesity in the most vulnerable. So those are political choices. Your annual report last year made air pollution and its effect on health its central <coughs> pillar of, of the report. We have a major issue with air pollution in this country and its driver of cardiovascular disease, and you've made the link with cancer. I just wonder if you would give us some of your thoughts on air pollution and how much of a low-hanging fruit that could be. We have had an extraordinary improvement in air pollution over the last 30 to 40 years. What we have not done so effectively, um, in my view, is uh, tackle indoor air pollution. 
And since that's where 80% of when pe where people spend their time in industrialised countries, that's a major issue. But largely the problem there is one of we don't know what to do yet. The science is not settled. For the layperson listening then, what's a driver of indoor air pollution? Well, indoor air pollution has got, essentially it's got, uh, it's got three kind of drivers. It's got the stuff coming in from the outdoors, and that's why tackling outdoor air pollution is essential, because unless you've got that, you open the windows, things get worse. It's got indoor air pollution created in the home, and that can be as simple as things like the wrong sorts of air fresheners. People want to know that. Uh, but then there's also ventilation. And here we've got a significant challenge because we both want to have good ventilation. It's good for reducing air pollution. It's good for reducing infection, a variety of other things. But we also want to retain heat, particularly in winter, to reduce our carbon footprint, to reduce people's bills. And those two are potentially in conflict. And we've therefore got to find engineering solutions <laughs> Perhaps we seal up our, our homes. So the solutions are uh, cervical cancer vaccinations. That's uh, convenient, isn't it? Uh, lung cancer is the primary cause of all worse cancers. And now we must be careful with our air fresheners, and not have uh, the outdoor air coming indoors, or and maybe I'm not understanding it. We'll come to your comments maybe probably in a minute, gentlemen, but just very quickly, just to finish my segment, wanted to see if there was any involvement with our friend, uh, Mr. Bill Gates, Sir Bill Gates. And it didn't take long to find that the Prime Minister and Bill Gates have launched a £400 million uh, partnership to boost green investment, which is including um, air quality. Now, I didn't know, but Bill Gates is the founder of Breakthrough Energy. And uh, Breakthrough Energy is a whole new, new news item. But what I would say is go to the website of Breakthrough Energy. Um, there's a very short video on the front page which shows Bill Gates because he's the chair of the board and all his ambitions for the UK and for the world with regards to air pollution. So that's what we've got to look forward to. Breakthrough Energy and Bill Gates. Okay, Debbie, can I, I just, um, well, really alert uh, viewers to the fact that uh, today there's a really excellent article by Headley Rees, which has gone out, which uh, which has gone up on the um, UK Column homepage, very um, detailed analysis of what's been going on in the pharmaceutical industry and this poisonous mix of the pharmaceutical industry who are the sellers uh, in bed with the regulators such as the MHRA. So I'd encourage people to go and have a look at that. And Bill Gates, of course, is in the mix. Uh, now, on the same topic, on, on uh, at the weekend, uh, in parallel with the uh, Stop the War event, uh, there was a protest going on over uh, the ultra-low emission zones, uh, expansion of ultra-low emission zones in London. Uh, quite a lot of people at this. Uh, and, uh, well, as you can see from the video. Um, so uh, this excellent event seemed to walk uh, to Downing Street, uh, among other things, uh, run by... Uh, this organization, sorry, this one, the Action Against uh, ULES Extension. Uh, they have a Facebook page if people want to get onto that. I'll just uh, bring up the About section. The group's primary objective is to stop the ULES Extension before it even started, before it's even started, to ensure that pay per mile, 15 minutes of decent living under a dictatorship control regime never happens. Our children deserve to live a happy, free life and not be forced to live in open prisons. Well, I think we can agree with that, but uh, 
you know, the, the key point here is that air quality is the, the justification for, for this type of policy. Yeah. And, well, let's leave it for another news because there's so much to, uh, to discuss in this particular uh, initiative. Uh, Alex. I do love that uh, tagline there, stop the carnage, as in K-H-A-N. Yes. Uh, very apt indeed. Uh, and of course, you know, you plugged the uh, the newest article there, Brian, quite right to do so. I deliberately didn't plug half a dozen in my slides for today because at this stage, dear viewers, if you're not on ukcolumn.org, you're losing two thirds of our material and every week, half a dozen, I'm not over, over egging the pudding here, half a dozen exclusives will have passed you by because they're only in text now. So get on ukcolumn.org and please let's stop hearing, I didn't know you had a website. Now, tying in very nicely with uh, Debbie's latest excellent interview is this. Uh, there is a channel on, uh, that's Odyssey, isn't it? Utras Evidencias, meaning other evidence, uh, which is run by the dental surgeon Marta Gameru from the well-known town of Fatima. Of course, it's where the apparitions happened, um, she refers to in her own interview. Uh, it's the uh, obligatory audition or hearing stage, which people who write petitions to the Portuguese parliament uh, have to go through by defending their submission uh, because uh, as you'll be seeing in a moment Dr. Gomero uh, is extremely keen uh, on uh, uh, interviewing people to the hazards particularly of the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty and international health regulations. Treaties again a big theme and it's often uh, motivated people in, in certain countries, the same ones again and again, Portugal in the European context, certain US states keep featuring who get their acts together and uh, do what needs to be done. So Dr. Gomero, uh, copy to her own channel there, is having to defend why she has petitioned the parliament that they should actually uh, have a referendum before acceding to this uh, ir irrevocable loss of sovereignty that would be entailed. Think of uh, Mark Anderson's reporting on the treaty. Here is a Portuguese pay, uh, article by page one, página U, about the uh, uh, initiative. And if you tip that, tap that again, you will see this will all be in the show notes. The uh, Assemblia de, de Republica, the, the parliamentary site of the Republic of Portugal, has this uh, 7,000 signatory uh, petition up at the moment, uh, requiring that there should be a referendum uh, before Portugal accedes to the treaty, which of course will be a parliamentary decision, which is why the petition's gone there. Now, who's behind this? This dental surgeon, Marta Gomero, with uh, an infectious smile and excellent enthusiasm for her task. So that's up on the website now, Portugal Pandemics and Parliament. And you can see at the bottom of the screen that she supplied a Portuguese translation to us below the English to the write up. Uh, but there's not just the keener states like the like Portugal, which are involved. EU wide, there is a petition initiative on health matters now. So uh, one of our EU viewers sent this in. Uh, this is the only initiative that the European Parliament didn't kill yet. If you want to know background, you'll have to wait till the forthcoming interviews uh, of mine are, on what's been done to kill parliamentary uh, petitions at EU level on health matters during COVID. Uh, but take it from me for now. Uh, the European Parliament's got wise to it and is bureaucratically killing petitions on COVID and other health matters. Uh, but there is one that's still open in 10 member states. Uh, in which people who don't have to be citizens, just residents of those countries, can add their names to their national level petition, which will be bundled. They're still open uh, and they will have to be dealt with by the petitions committee of the European Parliament. The st uh, still on the next slide shows uh, the only English language text of the 10 representing Ireland. But you will find a similar wording from other member states saying, in essence, 
that the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights, in which the Parliament has a role as guardian, although you know it's lesser than the Council and the Commission, it has a role, uh, that's being infringed by digital passports and other kinds of mandates. So the petitioners are still open uh, to be joined by others, just as if you're in Portugal, we'd recommend that you join Marta Gomero's petition, which will be in the show notes. The UK is a bit slacker on petitions, but this, which is coming now, was sent through by Dr. Mike Yeadon on his Telegram channel with a very wry comment. Uh, he says, I don't believe much in petitions. This one is require all businesses and public services to accept cash payments. Dr. Mike Eden says, I don't believe in them much, but let's force the so-and-sos to lie on camera. Uh, and you see, we've got the first stage already. Uh, with that many signatures, 17,000, Parliament is already going to debate this petition on the 20th of March. We'll see how many are in the chambers. And uh, one more uh, on that slide is that the petitions committee in our Parliament in Westminster uh, has uh, a consultation up, which will be in the show notes as well, on the acceptance of cash. In our letters to the editor up on the homepage at the moment under comment, you'll see that a fruity response has already been given to the British government uh, by one viewer on three issues, including digital ID and digital money, uh, digital pound being another. Uh, so go and perhaps inspired by him, fill in this before it gets too late. I think Thursday the 9th, if I've got the date right, is the closing date for that particular submission. Okay, thank you. Well, Debbie, you came up with this uh, little meme and I thought that was an appropriate place to insert it if you'd like to just talk our viewers through, if you can see the text. If not, I'll do it for you. No, you carry on, Brian. I thought this was a very poignant meme for this week. Okay, well, what we're looking at is a picture of a COVID-19 mRNA vaccine file on its side and uh, a number of different people have come out of it um, children who are clearly damaged, uh, an adult walking along with a, a drip attached, a young girl in a wheelchair and, and a man on crutches. And uh, the text above is stop supporting the narrative and underneath start supporting its victims. But uh, take us on through because um, you've got some uh, uh, further comments on matters to do with um, health policy. Well, where shall we start? I've just got a few little snippets of, of stories that people might uh, like to know. Susan Mickey, uh, as you know, she blocked me on Twitter, but I did manage to get this screenshot. And it seems that she's not having a very good Twitter experience. So she's decided to move her main social, act, uh, social media activity to LinkedIn. And there you go. You've got a nice invitation there. Do come and connect with me. And there's her a link to her LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to get hold of Professor Susan Mickey, who of course is the wife of Professor Robert West, then that's how to do it. Um, the other story that I wanted to cover was something that I, I'd seen the uh, Metro were covering in that we could start to see these products that you might be used to seeing vanishing from your uh, pharmacy, because this apparently is now going to be considered Sudafed, uh, Sinutab, uh, Night Nurse, Day Nurse, uh, even ibuprofen, uh, Nurofen, uh, these could be relegated now to prescription only. So I just wanted to bring people's attention to that. Now, they say that the reason that they might be pulling them is because it's been linked to a number of rare brain conditions. Um, reverse encephalopathy syndrome, press, and reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. So uh, the active ingredients of these medicines are, um, I can never say it, pseudoephedrine, 
And that's why they're considering taking them off market. Now, this to me, uh, I went into my local pharmacy and I bought a bottle of Night Nurse. And I happened to mention to the pharmacist, oh, my goodness, is this going to go off the counter? And she looked at me and she said, and this was what her, what she said. She said, oh, it seems as though anything that's good for you seems to be disappearing. And on the, a similar note, anybody with asthma who may be used to these uh, these inhalers, the Ventolin inhalers, salbutamol, um, these are now being changed to CFC inhalers, which are a lot smaller. So you're going from... Let me just put that down to give you a to give you an idea. You're going from that size to that size. So these are the CFC free inhalers of salbutamol. But they're saying that these also are in short supply because of plastics. So that's just a little bit on medicines. Debbie, if um, I can... next... Sorry, Deb... go on. Sorry, if I can just come in there. It seems to me remarkable that the symptoms that they're now blaming these particular products for just happen to be the same symptoms that we have seen unfold post-vaccination and, and designated in the MHRA's yellow card system. Or is that my imagination? Well, and as well as that, uh, they're, they're saying that uh, it's okay to, uh, that the vaccines are safe because there's millions of vaccines rolled out uh, and very, very few injuries uh, or deaths is what they claim. On the other hand, they're taking these, these products, products off the yeah. market, uh, which millions and millions of people have used uh, year on year for decades. Uh, and uh, they're taking them off because a very few people have apparently suffered a problem. Uh, there doesn't seem to be some any consistency in the argument, Debbie. No, there is no consistency at all. None. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see more and more things disappearing. As I went into the pharmacy, you know, the vitamins, the, the things that you would normally see in abundance, the shelves are empty. So just keep an eye on, on what is now going off for sale over the counter to prescription only. Um, a paper that's recently come out from The Lancet as well, uh, this is a paper, Past SARS-CoV-2 Infection Protection Against Reinfection, a systemic, system, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So interesting because it's saying what we've been saying for ages and it ends, our analysis suggests that the level of protection from past infection by variant and over time is at least equivalent, if not greater, than provided by two-dose mRNA vaccines. And look, the Declaration of Interests would suggest that the DMP report support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as grant payments made to the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. So clearly, Bill Gates knows that natural immunity, according to that paper, is as effective, if not more effective, then two doses of the mRNA injection. What a surprise. But that paper was from The Lancet. Um, and as everybody knows, I always keep an eye on the earthquakes and I'm always watching Dutch Synths on YouTube. And he quite rightly uh, did predict this and looked at it. But the residents in Wales were hit by a 3.8 magnitude earthquake um, on Saturday. And many locals said that it felt like the roof was falling off. So... There have been a few uh, earthquakes in the UK just recently, so keep your eyes on those. And still much devastation from Turkey and Syria. Many more earthquakes have hit, so our love and thoughts go out to everyone that's been affected. Uh, Debbie, just very quickly, I noticed in the headline it says it follows a minor quake. 
with its epicentre in Penryn, Cornwall earlier this week. I know people in Penryn and uh, I haven't had any feedback that something happened down there. So presumably that was a very, very small uh, minor quake, but uh, it's well, we, being grouped up. We've just got to remember that the UK is one of the most faulted uh, geologies in the world. And uh, although we don't experience large, large magnitude earthquakes, we experience earthquakes on a regular basis uh, right across the country. That's one of the reasons why it is absolutely unsuitable for the fracking industry uh, to get involved in because they have already set off many earthquakes uh, in this country, some of which did actual damage to buildings uh, in the Northwest, which is why the moratorium was brought in in the first place. Uh, anyway, Debbie. Mm, a little video. Um, please keep your eye on the NHS YouTube channel because they're always bringing out new YouTubes. This one was brought out yesterday. It's only 30 seconds and I thought you might be interested to have a little look. drama out of minor illnesses. For expert advice, speak to your pharmacist. Pharmacist has become Superman or Superwoman. Your thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, well, well it's, a, it's aimed at children again. That's my initial thing. All of these uh, clips, wherever they come from within the government and, and departments, they're always put together as if the public, the adult public, were children. Um, Alex, let's move to Australia. The state of Queensland in northeastern Australia has a significant problem with recruiting police. In the two segments you're about, or two videos you're about to watch, please bear in mind uh, that Queensland, along with other Australian states, uh, dismissed a number of perfectly capable police because they wouldn't take an experimental gene therapy treatment. But that's not the angle that uh, Channel 7 has come in on in Australia. Listen to this. And there's been an embarrassing leak involving the most powerful people inside the QPS. Erin Edwards joins us now. And Erin, Queensland is facing a critical shortage of police. Mm. Seven News has obtained a high-level document written by the executive. They warn the QPS doesn't have enough officers to meet demand. They say they need to recruit 1,200 police this year. That is very unlikely because it's twice the number usually sworn in. Police say they can't find enough suitable people who want to be police. Right now, there are 206 vacancies in criminal investigations, prosecutions and road safety. 800 more police will leave the service by 2026 because officers must retire at the age of 60. Now, Queensland was not the absolute worst state during uh, Australia's COVID tyranny. That accolade might go to either the Northern Territory or Victoria or Atapush, Western Australia but not looking good. And viewers will recall that Patrick Henningsen covered last Friday that Queensland is bringing in uh, a particularly wretched snoopers charter, an eye-popping version. Uh, but the same channel in a breakfast news format decided to report on what was being done to address this issue with a segment live to camera outside a Queensland police, sta uh, police station. Queensland government has struck a landmark deal which could help to address a statewide shortage of police officers. Let's go live to 7 News reporter Georgia Costi on the Gold Coast. Uh, Georgia, it involves recruiting help from overseas. 
It does, Eddie, and it's hoped that this new initiative will see 500 new Queensland police officers each year for the next five years. Now, how it would work is that these officers don't even need to be an Australian citizen or a permanent resident. They just have to be a serving police officer in their own country. And once they come here to Queensland, they will be trained to become a qualified constable. But of course, we know this new idea is the result of dwindling police numbers. New data has revealed that right now there are around seven Queensland police stations which are understaffed. And internal data does also show that this year alone, 1,200 new recruits would be needed to keep up with demand. So, Eddie, it really is a complex situation. We know crime is seemingly getting worse in Queensland, but we don't have enough boots on the ground to deal with it. So the government is looking to alternative solutions. So you don't have to know the common law. You don't have to be particularly fluent in English when you arrive by the sound of it. You simply have to be in the pay of a police service. Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, maybe, uh, who knows? Uh, arrive in Australia and you will be constabled in due course. And then you will be a pair of boots on the ground, as it's put in this case. So uh, we can see what's going on here. And here is just a, a screen capture of the Queensland state government's uh, announcement on the matter. Uh, these. Uh, new new officers are or constables whichever you prefer to call them are being described here as international police talent even if they're perhaps just fresh out of police college in some central asian dictatorship uh, no obstacle there uh, what's happening in english policing uh, we see that uh, the uh, chief constables who at law are magistrates and members of the executive uh, branch of government they're not constables at law the chief constables of manchester West Yorkshire and West Midlands from the top of my head uh, are saying that uh, basically the policy made decision made in 1986 should be reversed until then or till the 70s at least we had police courts uh, and you had uh, as you still do on the continent police pressing charges against what were thought to be minor tow rags uh, but no these three chief constables of these ominous forces are now saying that the crown prosecution service which has had its uh, monopoly since 1986 uh, should that should monopoly should be taken away from them while the suspect is in the cells, the investigating officer should already press charges. No doubt Charles Mallet will have things to say about this uh, in time to come because he's uh, consistently reported to us uh, that the problem with police and CPS, of course, is wokery and uh, chasing impossible to meet targets uh, in, in pleasing victims. Not a good sign at all because you're going back to uh, the uh, removal of justice from the judicial branch of government back to the executive in the interest of time, when we come back to me, why don't we go straight to slide 99? Okay, uh, so let's move on then. I think this is Debbie again. Yeah, just a, a very a quick little story here. Things started hotting up here in Cornwall at the beginning of the month when a school just down the road from me, Penrice Academy, uh, came under fire um, over toilet rules. And they decided that they would announce changes to how pupils should go to the toilet, um, that they weren't allowed to go to the toilet during lesson time, and that any girls um, needing a, a, a period pass, as they were calling them, would need a red pass. Well, obviously, this did not go down well. And the story has since escalated to just um, last week, um, Penrice, that the same school and also schools in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire literally erupted over these new rules. Um, I heard from many people from Penrice in Cornwall 
that pupils were chanting, they were shaking the fences, they were flipping tables, the police had to be called, a number of children had to be sent home. But clearly there's a great deal of unrest that children are now being told supposedly that they can't go to the toilet. There was also talk, and this is just anecdotal that I've heard, that they put bars up in the toilets um, in, the, in the school in Cornwall and pupils felt as though they, they were trapped uh, as a punishment for the riots or as the protests, as they were called. Um, they were kept in at break. So, yeah, not good here down in Cornwall and the rest of the world, uh, the rest of the country with regards to how kids should use toilets. Okay, and uh, sticking with these types of issues, Alex, we're moving on to gender. Yes, uh, Mike, we have to do that if we're worth our, our salt, because, of course, Hope Not Hate reports uh, on UK columns having an undue focus on drag queen story time and the sexualisation of primary school children. So we'd better live up to the billing, hadn't we? Christian Concern has, uh, for earlier in uh, the month, uh, in February now, because it's last month now, reported on this mother. I'm sorry I don't have the lady's name to hand, uh, but she is legally challenging. That's what Christian Concern specialises in legally challenging a school which decided to ally with Stonewall, the bushy charity, uh, above its interests in uh, obligations to parents, uh, forcing her four-year-old to take part in a pride event. So a bit of the text follows uh, that there was supposedly um, uh, an essay competition of a year one pupil for the foreign viewers, that's five to six-year-olds, or not an essay competition, but rather um, they put up on the school's website uh, that this a child of that age had written a placard inspired by I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King. I Have a Dream, wrote this five-year-old, if boys could go to the same toilet as girls. Of course, that came straight out of the five-year-old's uh, own mind, didn't it? It wasn't put there at all. Uh, the, school, uh, the school's deputy head teacher was a trained Stonewall champion and the, uh, made the school focus on the idea of no hierarchy of equalities. But just contrast that approach with what Kemi Badenoch, the UK government equalities minister, said quite recently uh, on this very issue. There we are. No hierarchy of equalities. So no warning was given to parents that this was going to happen. And Izzy, the mother, only learned of the parade uh, involving her four-year-old from a newspaper article. Um, Drag Queen Storytime continues to incense our viewers. Um, Here we have a question posed to Sheffield Central Library by one of our viewers. Um, Why is a a nappy or diaper an animal fetishist being brought in for a family event? Uh, The Express newspaper reported on this, and that was included in the inquiry that our viewer sent to Sheffield. Uh, This is absolutely disgusting. The initial holding reply was, uh, this this so-called woman, Sophie Labelle, is an acclaimed Canadian cartoonist, We're aware of what's being said, but we have no safeguarding concern. We stand by her because we're a diverse city. Uh, Not phased by this, uh, the viewer replied, um, forcing forcing this uh, complaint, this response to the complaint by the city council. Uh, So some, I'm deliberately withholding the the name. I don't want people being targeted. Uh, But uh, on behalf of the city's libraries, uh, the council employees said, we're aware of the complaints relating to Sophie's personal life. That would be the, the fetishism and the, the nappy uh, fixation or diaper. Um, we do look into these concerns, but it's a ticketed event in the evening. It's aimed at teenagers upwards. But if families take small children, we're not going to, t- to show them the door. Uh, we're going to stand by this because, uh, you know, she's such an important person. Final response on this from the viewer. This is simply not good enough. I don't care how many cities he speaks at or visits. That doesn't make being sexually aroused by people dressing as babies and being aroused by animals normal. Perhaps for your next event, you may want to invite Gary Glitter. 
for the pederast pop star who's just been released from prison. Perhaps you could elaborate on how someone is who is aroused by things relating to babies is not a safeguard risk to children. It is not right to support people drawing and or viewing cartoons of animals in nappies in sexual poses. It is sick and depraved. Uh, we see Muslim parents are very concerned as well. Uh, so Five Pillars, uh, perhaps the premier Muslim uh, media outlet in Britain now, reports that yet again there's been a wave of Muslim parents uh, threatening to withdraw their children from school unless their concerns are addressed. Uh, this is England, of course, not Wales, where we have uh, much more of this pressure on now. But uh, the uh, concerns are listed on screen. I won't read them. We've covered some of these in UK Column News. Uh, that's what caused the Muslim parents to, uh, to threaten to withdraw their children, um, you know, including why didn't you join the gay club at school? Um, the relevant uh, ministry uh, in Whitehall replied, well, this statutory guidance is clear that we should take account of people's religious background. But ah, here's the giveaway. It's for schools to decide. This is a bit like the MHRA's passing of the buck. Uh, schools decide how they teach the curriculum. Now we see why the curriculum was deliberately not in place in Wales's case uh, for fear that this would happen. And uh, just on that particular issue of policing uh, of uh, drag queen story time protests, we'll, we'll have more in extra time uh, because it's unsuitable for main news. But here we see that the counter protest supporting drag queen story time in one case outside a primary school, you can see that in the foreground, it's the Metropolitan Police and it's rather unfortunate for the constable's concern that what they're defending here, I understand there's a public security issue uh, necessitating their presence, but the, the most prominent sign in the background there, uh, held by the pro-drag uh, queen storytime person, is queer joy is for all ages. don't know what you think of that, gentlemen. Uh, well, I think it's obvious what the real agenda is, and that is to uh, suppress people's morality until it is acceptable to have sex with children. That is, that's clearly where this is heading. And of course, the poison has been injected into not only government authorities and local councils, it's police, it's across the board. And it's becoming increasingly easier to see this is the agenda. Sex with children, and now we have emerging from the wings sex with animals to go with it. Um, we need to leave it there. Well, that's poignant note to leave on, isn't yeah. it, I think. Okay, Alex, um, well, as you've said, we'll cover um, more items of today's news will be brought through into extra time. So those who are signed up members with UK Column will be able to join us. A big thank you to all our audience, wherever you are worldwide. And thank you very much for the emails that keep flooding in saying that uh, you're, great, you're grateful for what we're doing and the news that we're pointing putting out. So we would just reflect back, please share what uh, we're putting out as the news. That's why we do it. Just a, a, a little bit of a correction here. We showed on Monday video footage of two young men being um, uh, taped to lampposts in Ukraine and then their uh, trousers and pants pulled down to expose them to the public. Um, I reported this, that this was part of the uh, Ukrainian um, what do you describe conscription. them? Conscription on the streets. We understand that actually this was an event that happened uh, some time ago and was actually the result of looting taking place. Um, so we'll stand by that correction. However, it gives us an indication of the type of society Ukraine is and uh, what it's prepared to do to uh, people. And uh, uh, we'll leave our viewers to reflect on that. 
Um, uh, we'll just also mention, by the way, that that uh, little bit of video inserted in the UK column news had the program removed from Facebook. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, you, you can't report people being sexually abused because Facebook takes that down because it's it's well, <laughs> it's incredible. We just ask our audience today to reflect on the fact that we are getting very close to some 500 thousand young men, Ukrainian and Russian, now dead on the battlefields in Ukraine as a result of this horrific policy pressed by the US, UK, NATO and the European Union. Half a million young men dead. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us.